The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please open up your Bibles. We're going to be today in Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 9. And as you're navigating there, I want to share with you an interesting literary connection to our passage this morning. Many of you have probably heard of Dante Alighieri. He is famous for writing what's known as the Divine Comedy. It's a trilogy of stories about a man who has taken on a tour of hell, which is called the Inferno. And then he's taken on a tour of the mystical and fabled and unrealistic and fake land of purgatory called the Purgatorio. And finally, he's taken to heaven where Virgil shows him around uh, heaven itself. Just to be clear, these books contain terrible theology. If you want to get a biblical perspective of the afterlife, this is not the right place to go. However, even though the Divine Comedy has no value in teaching us biblical truth, it does give us a very interesting glimpse into the apostate Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages. Of the three books of the Divine Comedy, the most popular, by far, most certainly, is the first that he wrote, The Inferno. And as he wrote The Inferno, it drew the attention of many people. It's like a horror book for many. They looked at this and were terrified of what they were reading. And in it, Dante describes his perception of hell with vivid and horrific detail. And he wrote about nine circles of hell. Those people who were not so bad, but they were just bad enough to get into hell, they, they were the ones there in that first circle. But the worse you were, the farther down into hell you went, down all the way to the worst of the worst, the ninth circle of hell that was reserved for the most offensive of sinners, like Judas Iscariot. One of the things that made Dante's Inferno simultaneously very popular and also very controversial is the fact that he wrote many famous religious rulers, even some who were still alive or some who had just deceased, into hell. And he wrote about them suffering and about why it was that they would never see heaven. Perhaps the encounter that would have most surprised the reader in the Middle Ages was when Dante and his guide Virgil come into contact in the eighth circle of hell with a former pope. Pope Nicholas III. And what was the sin that caused this Pope to be there in this low part of hell, nearest to the bottom as he could get? What is it that caused this supposed man of God to find himself suffering for eternity in this way, according to Dante? It was the sin of simony. I am curious if anyone here thinks they could confidently describe what I mean when I say simony. Does anybody think they know a solid dictionary-style definition of that word? Nobody. And that's because we don't use this term very often, often. But simony is the sin of buying or selling ecclesiastical privilege, for example, pardons or positions. Pope Nicholas III was famous for selling positions of power. You want to be a priest? Pay up. Want to be a bishop? It's going to be a lot more. You want to be a cardinal? You're going to have to pour a lot of money into my personal pockets. And his family line became of great wealth for centuries in Europe because of his sin of simony. And Dante's writings highlighted the hypocrisy and the villainy of a person who would attempt to gain power by buying or selling access to God in any way. 
Simony is a word that you probably have not heard often, but its origins and its roots stretch right back into our text today. In our passage this morning, we are going to meet a man who had a sin named after him. And in doing so, we're going to encounter a strong warning against abusing the Holy Spirit by attempting to gain power for personal gain. So please follow along in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9 and following. Here's the man that we are introduced to, Simon. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Father God, there may be many different various motivations of why the people are here today. Perhaps it's a tradition. This is just what we do as a family. We come to church. But Lord, I pray this would be, at this time, no mere tradition. That we would be here to meet with you. And that you would indeed truth, truly meet with us. Just as we sang moments ago, we ask that you would speak, O oh Lord. That this time would be your moment to declare to us what your word means for our lives right now. That you would give us the ability to not only hear with physical, human, earthly ears, but by your work, by the Spirit, you would give us ears to hear so that we might have a supernatural response to what we hear today. That we would walk away from this place different, changed, unlike Simon. That we would be repentant, that we would be transformed, and Lord, we know that this only takes place through your work in our lives. So today, as I stand here, I pray that you would be with me, that I would by no means be alone, that you would be working to serve your people through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our approach to the text this morning is going to be something like this. 
First, we're just going to do a simple walk through the passage, and then we're going to finish up with three applications for our own lives. Last week, Juan Kwok preached about how the gospel had been spread from Jerusalem, now up here into this land of the Samaritans. The church probably looked at the murder of Stephen. They, they looked at that first martyrdom and they saw nothing more than senseless violence and unbridled evil. But as the church dispersed into the Roman Empire, they took their faith with them. And we can look back at this inciting moment of persecution as God's gracious hand directing the early church into its first mission field. Last week, you learned about Philip, who spread the gospel boldly and faithfully to the Samaritans. Although he was fearful of death in Jerusalem, he remember, he is one of those men that was also a deacon listed alongside Stephen. Yet when he goes, he does not close his mouth. He continues to preach and proclaim the truth of the cross wherever he goes. And when he gets to the land of Samaria, many of them came to faith in Christ. But long before the power of the Holy Spirit was being displayed in that region, the power of Satan was on full display through the life of a man named Simon the Sorcerer. And the text makes it clear to us that this was a famous magician. We read in verse 11 that they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Historically, people who are quote-unquote magicians, they don't stay in a place for a long time because people figure out what's going on. People realize most of the things that's really disappearing is their wallet. But here in this case... Simon stays for a long time in Samaria, and it seems that this magic was legit. Simon was no mere party clown who would just do little tricks like pretending to remove his thumb and then put it back on. Luke gives us every reason to think that this is much more than an illusionist. It seems from the text that this man was actually utilizing the power of the devil. Just like the sorcerers in the day of Moses who also cast down their staves and they turned into serpents, it seems like this man was able to harness the work of the devil for his own personal gain. We know from extra-biblical literature uh, and we know from history that this man was not only famous in Samaria, he was famous, famous throughout the Roman Empire. Both Justin Martyr and Trypho reveal that this man had previously been in Rome and had been publicly announced to be a living God because of his magical works. People viewed him as a deity. And when Simon arrived in Samaria, Luke tells us that he was professing that he was, quote, somebody great. He came in declaring himself to be Simon the Great. Usually, if somebody receives that name, the Great... Alexander the Great, for example, they don't give that name to themselves. Historians do that to them. But here, he is declaring that he himself is great. And the people certainly agreed, because verse 10 tells us exactly how they viewed him, that they would say, this man is the power of God that is called great. Remember, the Samaritans believed the first five books of the Bible. This is the remnant of those people from the ten tribes of Israel who were destroyed by the Assyrians and who then intermarried with the Assyrians. So the Jewish people looked at them as a quote-unquote half-breed nation, half-Jewish, half-Assyrian, part of the people of God, but mostly the enemies of God. And they had taken the religion of the Israelites and they had remembered the first five books of the Bible, but they had mixed it with all sorts of paganism. However... They still believed that there was a God, 
that was to be worshipped in a place. And they even set up a place of worship on a hill in Samaria where we hear about them in John chapter 4 when this woman asked Jesus whether it's right to worship there on that hill or if it's right to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And of course, Jesus replied that the hour was coming quickly approaching where the worship of God would not be in either of those places necessarily, but it would be in spirit and in truth. That's why we can worship in this building, or you can worship in your own home, or you can worship on the subway. You can worship literally anywhere because it is not a location. It is now in spirit and in truth. Wherever you are in the spirit and wherever you have the truth of the gospel, you can worship the Lord rightly. So the Samaritans, they understood something about God. They still had somewhat of a framework of God. Similar, I would say, to the sense that our nation at some point have had many, many genuine believers. And there was a framework of understanding where the average person would believe that there is a God. And maybe even the average person would believe that there is a Trinitarian God. Now that's quickly fading away in our culture. But what we're seeing here is the fading away of any kind of real understanding of God in their culture as well. But we see that they were unwilling to call this man a God like the Romans. This conversation here that we saw with Jesus, with the Samaritan woman, would help us understand why they would not go so far as to call Simon God. Because they did believe in a single God, and they knew that there was only one true God that existed, but their religion had become nothing more than a muddled collection of pagan beliefs. But they would not go so far as to call him God. Instead, they said, this man is the power of God. He is the outworking of God's God's immense, glorious strength. This man is the one who reveals what God is doing behind the scenes, and he does it right out here in the open. So they were, interestingly, attributing the works of Satan to God. And Simon loved it. But then something shook the very foundation of the city of Samaria. Philip arrived preaching the good news and all who heard it and believed in Jesus Christ were saved. This good news is that Jesus Christ was the son of God and Jesus Christ, this good news, this gospel was the power unto salvation for all who would believe. And many came to faith and in a surprising turn of events, Simon is also said to have believed and to have been baptized. At this point, I should point out to you, there is a lot of debate in the theological world about whether or not Simon was actually saved at this point. Luke writes for us that he believed. Most biblical scholars would say, no, he did not actually believe. He was a false convert. In fact, John MacArthur refers to Simon as the first false convert of the church. And personally, I do not think that Simon was saved. So I'm going to move forward under that conviction, and I will attempt to convince you of that along the way here in the sermon. But I think Dr. Luke gives us a clue right up front that there's a problem here, that you can smell a rat in this story with Simon's focus and his motivation. Notice the second half of verse 13. It says, And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. It does not say that seeing the grace of God, he was amazed. It does not say that seeing the forgiveness of sin, he was amazed. It's when he saw that powerful working in the community, when he saw miracles taking place. That's what caught his eye. Let me tell you something very important. There are many people today who are still proclaiming that they can do miraculous things and they are failing to miss the true miracle, which is salvation, where God takes a dead sinner and brings them to life. He was not interested seemingly in that miracle. He wanted the temporary, the earthly, 
the physical healings that eventually will fade away because those people will die. He was not interested in the spiritual transformation of somebody who comes to life spiritually and who never dies. It seems that his focus was only on the miraculous. This could be a simple description intended for nothing more than to say that, wow, yeah, definitely, he was blown away, just like everyone else was blown away. But I think the reason that this is here in the inspired word of God is to foreshadow the fact that Simon was not in it for Christ. He was not in this faith for Jesus. He was in it to learn a new magic trick. And ultimately, he was in it to make more money. He wanted the power of God, not the person of God. Regardless, Simon is also the first in a long line of famous people who have claimed to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. And in every place and in every time period, there have always been celebrities who make professions of faith. Sometimes these professions are genuine. Sometimes they are not. But the church tends to be really weird about it when somebody who is famous gets saved, or at least claims to be. Some Christians immediately doubt it, and they assume there's absolutely no way God saved that guy or that woman. They look at it, and they see it as nothing more than a publicity stunt. And others tend to be immediately excited, and they rejoice, not because the person was lost and is now found, but because this lends credibility to the church. See, even that guy believes it. Or because they're so interested in that person's position of influence in the culture that now that guy can be a mouthpiece for the gospel. Of course we want him on our team. But I think it's important to see that the right response is somewhere in the middle of these two. About seven years ago, I remember speaking to a young student in my youth group. And I explained to him why his obsession with certain celebrities was not healthy for his spiritual life. And he in particular loved to follow Kanye West and his wife and their family. That was an obsession of his. And in that conversation, I clearly remember telling him that I believe that Kanye and his wife were very ungodly examples to follow and that they exemplify the idolatry of the American dream and they express the very worst parts of our anti-Christian culture. Now, in recent months, Kanye West has professed faith in Christ. And from all that I've seen so far, It appears that his walk with Jesus is genuine. But whether it's a singer or an athlete or a politician or a business mogul, don't hang your hopes on them to be heroes of the faith. Greatness in the world does not correlate to greatness of faith. Just as an example, I hope that Kanye is a Christian. And even in you, I was tempted not to use him at all as an example today because only God knows what is true in this man's heart. I don't know, and you don't know. So as much as I hope that this man's life will be used to expand the kingdom of God and to share the gospel with many who otherwise might not have heard it, this week, as I have prayed for this man, I have mainly prayed, not that he would be a great evangelist, but that he would be a faithful Christian who commits to a local church and who becomes a consistent everyday, average believer, just like you and me, who loves Jesus with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is now, supposedly, according to his testimony, a believer. And at this point, I have no reason to disbelieve him. In the scope of things, I rejoice, not because of his position, but because this individual sheep returned to Christ. So, we don't want to be weird about celebrity Christians. This man... He is not now, nor will he ever be the face of the church. That job 
belongs to Jesus alone. One of the other reasons that I think Simon's story made it here into the page of the Bible when so many other converts' stories did not make it is that this man was an influential figure. This man, just like Kanye, was probably the talk of the church in his day. That guy got saved? Are you serious? He was a household name. He was very famous. And then his sin that takes place later in the passage would have sent shockwaves to the church who probably expected him to be a celebrity leader in the church just like he had been in the world. But let's leave Simon for a moment and cast our attention back to Jerusalem. Although many Christians had fled, the leaders of the church, the apostles, had all remained in Jerusalem. It must have been an unspeakable blessing to them when the news arrived from some messenger who came from Samaria saying, you, you're never going to believe this. The Samaritans are trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. The Samaritans are believing the gospel. And the disciples had been there many times with Jesus. And Jesus had preached the gospel to them in a veiled way before the cross. And how exciting must it have been for these disciples, these apostles now to say, wow. When Jesus talked about those fields that were ripe for the harvest, he was actually talking about them. And that now they are being harvested and being brought into the kingdom. So the apostles wanted to make sure this was the real deal. And they wanted to ensure that God was really doing a work in the people of Samaria. So Peter and John made the trip north to inspect what the Lord was doing in that place. Now here's a very important key to understand what is taking place. Our Pentecostal brothers and sisters will take this passage to mean something that Luke never intended. They will use this passage to argue that salvation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are separate events. First you get saved, and then far later, potentially, you get filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are two unique experiences. They believe in what they call the second blessing, and some refer to it as being baptized in the Holy Spirit, and others refer to it as being baptized with fire, even though that term certainly means the destruction of people. It's talking about judgment. But there is scriptural defense that they use here in this text, but their defense is unfounded. The reason for the delay of the Holy Spirit in this situation was for the purpose of the unity of the church. This is a pattern set by God as a way to make the examples, the apostles, the foundation of the church. For example, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now recognize what he's saying here is, you Jewish people and Gentiles are part of the same family. You are together one church, not the Jewish church and the Gentile church, not the Jerusalem church and the Sumerian church and then the, the pagan church. You are, no, one church. And you are under one banner, which is God. But it says... Here in the following parts of the verse, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So get the picture. It's the idea that there is one foundation. I live in Levittown. I don't have a basement. just like most houses in Levittown don't. That means there's just a slab. That is Jesus in the church. He is the foundation stone. 
and everything else is built upon it. And in this instance, what he's saying is the next step in that building is the foundation of the apostles. Every true church that has ever existed from that time till now springs forth from their teaching and from their initial work. So what he is doing here in this passage is he is setting something up to say, this Samaritan church is not a random offshoot. It is not a new work. Instead, it is a continuation of the work set forth by the apostles. God is bringing them into one fold, not two. So this pattern emerges clearly in the book of Acts. We see early on in chapter 2, when the Jews first receive the gospel, or when they first receive the Holy Spirit, God comes and he verifies that new work by filling them with the Holy Spirit, which is accompanied by unique works and unique gifts and miracles. Here in Acts chapter 8, when the gospel crosses that cultural border to the Samaritans, the Holy Spirit then validates the event with signs and miracles and unique gifts. But it only happens under the care of the apostles. God waits and holds back until somebody is there to validate what is taking place. If this was going on, it is very likely that the Jerusalem church would have said, oh, God is starting a new thing there. And they would have remained in Jerusalem and said, we will continue the work here. And if that was the case, the church would have never made it forth from the first century. Again, we move forward in Acts chapter 10, when the first Gentiles are saved, The same thing occurs. Cornelius and his family receive the Spirit, and they speak in tongues only after Peter arrives. And the only other occasion when we see the gift of tongues being practiced in the book of Acts is in chapter 19, when Paul teaches a group led by Apollos about the gospel. They had believed the teaching of John the Baptist, but they had never heard the teachings of Jesus. And when these men, who were probably from North Africa, heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit filled them, which was accompanied by signs, including the gift of tongues. But it only happened through the ministry of Paul, an apostle. So to summarize, there is no such thing as a second blessing. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a very real thing, but it happens at salvation. It happens when the Holy Spirit indwells you. It happens the same time somebody is saved. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 explains it this way. It says, However, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. This is the term that is used to speak about the Holy Spirit living in an individual. This is, this is the same thing as being baptized in the Holy Spirit, to be soaked and saturated in the Spirit. And then he continues and says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. In other words, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Jesus. There are many people who will tell you, you get saved first and you get the Holy Spirit later. Clearly, Paul and the the Holy Spirit is proclaiming of himself through the mouthpiece of Paul. That is absolutely untrue. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not saved at all. So we continue on here, considering what it is that is going on here in Samaria. The church was established that day in that place, and the people were dramatically filled with the Holy Spirit, but then the dark cloud of sin begins to burgeon in the heart of Simon. Verses 18 through 19 reads, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hand, the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon was attempting to replace his power of magic with the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Simon the sorcerer was looking at Simon Peter and was jealous of his abilities. Simon the sorcerer had been nicknamed the power of God, but now he had seen the true power of God, and he saw it at, that it was on the laying on of hands was what caused that power of God to go into somebody, and he was willing to pay a fortune to have that power. The Holy Spirit is worth every penny that you could give for him, and so much more. He is worth every treasure of the universe, but God is not for sale. And you cannot buy his presence. You cannot purchase his affection. There is no treasure trove in the universe big enough to acquire his power. There is no payment that you could make that would admit you into his presence, even for a moment. So by offering this payment, Simon was revealing what he really thought of God. That God was nothing more than an impersonal force that was purchasable. He doesn't seem to think about a relationship with God at all. He simply thinks of the power of God as a commodity. Why would he want this power for himself? Why wasn't he content just to let the apostles have this power and let the apostles do their work? It seems that his aim was to build his own platform and to keep his honored position in the eyes of the people. His power is gone if he can't do magic now. If he's not going to access that power of the devil, then what now is he allowed to do? Well, I need some way to continue having my name get out there. Peter immediately and passionately responds with a powerful and absolute no. His exact words were, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. The key word in this text is perish. Here, this is, an, this is not just a may you pass away someday and eventually and your, your wealth not pass on to your descendants and just go into the grave with you. This is called an anathematic curse. It means it's an anathema being pronounced. In other words, he's not just telling him to go die. He's actually telling him to go to hell and take his money with him. This is an intense curse. This is one of the strongest and most biting rebukes in all of the Bible. But Peter does not stop there. He continues and he says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You might think that that's harsh, but anything less than this from Peter would have been quite unloving. The advice that Peter gives to Simon is the exact same advice whether he was a saved person or not, which I certainly think he was not. He simply tells Simon to repent. Look, Simon, you don't have to make restitution. You don't have to work really hard to make God love you. You don't have to work really hard to, to fix this problem that you just made. All you have to do is repent. All you have to do is come to the Lord, confess your sin, recognizing that you need his love to cover your sin that you just committed. He simply tells him, repent. However, I want you to see that in this statement that Peter makes, this rebuke, Peter uses slavery language. And this, to me, is the most significant key to show that this man is not a genuine believer. He speaks of him being tied up in the bondage to iniquity. Now, it doesn't come through in English super clearly, but in Greek, it's absolutely certain that this is highly connected to something Paul would say later when he calls people slaves to sin. When he speaks about that, he is not speaking of Christians who got trapped in some kind of ongoing, besetting sin. 
He's talking about people who have never truly known Christ. And that exact same language of being in bondage and being enslaved to sin is how he describes Simon here. I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in bondage to sin. If you're here today as an unbeliever, this exact same command that Peter gives is the command that I give to you. The Bible says that you are a slave to sin. It teaches that you are controlled by your passions. You are not able to make the decision to live a righteous life. You can't do it. You can try. You might even be able to stop doing something over here. But if you don't turn to Christ, you're just going to turn to some other form of sin. You are controlled by your sinful desires. If you are an unbeliever and you are here, that means that in some ways you are like Simon. Maybe you're not trying to buy the power of God. But when we are like Simon, undercover, acting as a believer, people thinking that we are a believer in the church, we can hide it pretty well for a time. But eventually, eventually you're going to show your cards. Eventually, if you are an unbeliever, walking in hypocrisy, just hiding who you are, putting on a mask when you come to church, eventually that will become known. At our church, we have a a pretty strict membership process where we go through, those of you who have become members know there's a lot that is involved in becoming a member because we want to know that the people who become members of this church, to the best of our ability, we want to know we are not bringing in a wolf. We are not bringing in a Simon. We are not bringing in somebody who is a false convert. But sometimes, no matter how well we read through the paperwork and how well we question you in an interview process, it does not matter. Sometimes we as elders will get it wrong. And when that happens, there will be people in the church who we have said, just like this church said of Simon, we believe this person is saved. Philip baptized this man. They thought he was the real deal. Yet what happens? He reveals over the course of time that he's not truly in Christ. I want to ask for those who are new to the church, those who are non-members, and those who are members to all examine yourself to see whether you are in Christ. Here's the good news. It does not matter if you have been hiding and you have been a, a member of a church for 30 years and now you realize I'm not truly saved. If that is the case, then repent. Or if you are hearing the gospel for the first time today, you have never heard the good news of Jesus and you hear it this morning, then the answer for you is exactly the same. Repent. That is all that Peter can give to Simon. That is all he can say to him. Just look to Jesus and repent because there is salvation for those who do. So what is the gospel that I'm talking about? It is the good news that even though we were slaves to sin, even though we were enemies of God, even though we had opposed him, God in love sent his own son to walk among us, to live like us, to put on human flesh, to take on our identity with every similarity with us, except one, that he was without sin and that he lived a perfect sinless life unlike you or I ever could. And at the cross, what happened was Jesus intentionally went to die so that he could take the sin of his people and that he could give his righteousness to them. It is an unfair but beautiful substitution that we who do not deserve to be in the presence of God now wear his righteousness like a robe. That we can declare, yes, Lord, I am righteous and I can enter into your presence because of the blood of Jesus that was spilled on our behalf. If you don't know this Jesus whether you have professed salvation for a long time and you know that you're just hiding or whether you've never heard it before, may today be the day that you hear the command that Peter has given to repent 
and believe, and you will be saved. But then we see the response of Simon. The former sorcerer's response is simply this. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. What we're going to do at this time is simply consider three applications from this text. But none will be longer or more important than the first, which comes directly from his response. Application one is this. We've already spoken about it. It's repent. But I want to expound on that for a moment. You may notice that this verse is a strange place to end the story. There seems to be no closure. Luke intentionally leaves us hanging without much of an indication of what happened to this man, Simon. And you often come across this kind of situation in literature. The, the author wants you to have this kind of broken off ending, this really sharp stop, so that you will consider, so that the story hangs with you, so that it makes you think. This happens across all forms of literature. In film, for example, perhaps the best example I can think of is that of the movie Inception. If you've seen it, you will know what I mean. At the very end, the image fades into blackness, leaving you to fill in the ending for yourself. What just happened? Which of these two realities is true? In Simon's case, there's only two possibilities. Either he repented and believed, or he did not. Let me tell you why I think he did not. I believe that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, allows us to see this so that we will spot ourselves in the story and see if we've genuinely repented of our worldly pursuits. Simon, after this point, is off the pages of our Bible, never to be heard from again. However, we know from extra-biblical writers that people like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, that Simon would eventually go on to start a cult. And the cult that he creates is the cult of the Simonians, named after him. And the cult that followed him was what we call the pre-Gnostics. These people are the ones who started the Gnostic movement, which was one of the worst and most pervasive cults that the church ever battled in the first several centuries of its existence. But I'm not just taking my argument here from history. I think we can actually see evidence of false repentance here in his words. Notice that Simon does not ask for his relationship to be made right with God. He simply asked that he would not encounter the terrible curses that Peter has just spoken. He was more interested in avoiding consequences of sin than he was in actually being in a right relationship with Christ. I've got four kids, one coming. Uh, The four of them, I know exactly how they respond to discipline. The one on its way, I'm assuming, will be identical. But if you're a parent, I think you've probably had this experience as, as well. When you are disciplining your children, there are times when their heart responds by just trying to get out of discipline. They, you know, you can tell when a three-year-old is just trying not to be disciplined or when they are genuinely wanting to have a right relationship restored with you. There is an obvious and noticeable difference. The question is, what does this guy really want? It appears that he just wants to avoid getting disciplined by God. And the question of the day is not really whether or not Simon repented. The question is whether or not you have repented. Why are we even here? What are we doing here at church? Is it because you love the Lord and therefore love his people and love hearing his word? Or is it because you think that your presence in this building on this particular day will somehow shield you from the wrath that you rightly deserve? True repentance looks like owning the ways that you have fallen short. True repentance looks like renouncing sinfulness. It looks like seeking Jesus for forgiveness. I'm actually going to borrow for a moment from an article called The Unrepenting Repenter by Jim Eliff. 
It's one that I've referenced before in this pulpit, and it's one that I highly recommend that you read the entire article. In it, he defines 12 false forms of repentance. And for this morning, I'm just going to borrow from two of them that we see evidently here in the life of Simon. First of all, Jim Elif says, you may repent for fear of reprisal alone and not for the hatred of sin. Any man will stop sinning when caught or relatively sure that he will be caught unless there is insufficient punishment or shame attached. When there are losses great enough to get his attention, then he will reform. If this is the entire motive of his repentance, he has not repented at all. It is the work of the law, not the work of grace. Men can be controlled by fear, but what is required is a change of heart. Achan admitted his sin after being caught, but he would not have admitted it otherwise. Find his bones in the valley of Achor and his soul most likely in hell. And then he continues and gives another false form of repentance, which says, you may repent primarily for temporal gains rather than for the glory of God. There are gains for the repenter, but the final motivation for repenting cannot be selfish. Self is dead. It is a stinking carcass to be discarded. We are to repent because God is worthy and is our respected authority, even if we gain nothing. Indeed, our repenting may appear to lose us more than our sin had gained us. Do you understand what he's saying in these two situations? First, he's saying, if you're only repenting because you got caught or because you know you're going to get in trouble, that's not real repentance. Or if you're only repenting because you think you'll get something out of it, or because you're protecting yourself or trying to to earn something by it, that is not true repentance either. So application one is to repent truly and fully before the Lord of any indwelling sin. Not just when you get saved. Repentance is the ongoing practice of the Christian life. When you fall into sin, fight it and kill it and take it to the Lord and say, I want nothing to do with this anymore and run to him for forgiveness. Not just to get out of punishment, not just to gain favor with anyone, but so that you might be right with God. Application two, rebuke one another. One of the most overlooked commands of the New Testament is the loving command to rebuke one another. And I think the reason that we intentionally overlook this is because it's hard for us to understand how we can do this in a loving way. How am I supposed to go to that person and say something to this person and tell them that they are wrong in a loving way? That just seems unkind. Part of the problem with our modern church and the reason that there is so much sin pervading it is because we have decided in our own minds that it is loving to disobey God, that it is loving to avoid rebuke, and we don't call people out on the carpet. Not saying that we should do this in an antagonistic way or a way that we are trying to cause fights, but in a way to say, you are not currently right with God. A rebuke is not an attack. A rebuke is designed to take a flashlight into the dark corner of somebody's heart where you can see that there's a sin in there, but that person can't see it. There's a blind spot where they either don't know or don't care, and either one of those situations is problematic, and we have to call them to live rightly before the Lord. It means to call someone out in grace. Not saying that I'm perfect. I know that I get a lot of things wrong. I know that I'm a sinner. But I want to show you that before God, there's an area of your life that needs to change. Paul wrote to both Titus and Timothy, his young protégés in the gospel, and he told them to rebuke those who fell into sin. And in our passage today, we saw Peter sharply rebuke Simon. 
Most of the time, our rebukes are called to be much more gentle than that. For example, Galatians 6.1 teaches us, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself too, lest you too be tempted. But on the other hand, if someone does not repent after being confronted directly, then we are told to escalate the process to church discipline by bringing it before the body. Paul explains it in this way to Pastor Timothy. He says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. So that everyone recognizes this is not something that we allow in the family of God. This is not something that is emblematic of a Christian. I want to tell you that as members of this church, you are responsible to watch over one another. You are, as Paul writes, members of one another. You are not individual Christians who just happen to have a single connection to this building. You are people who are members one of another, and you are called to watch over one another. It is not just the job of the elders to care for your souls, although the elders have a unique position and role to do that. You are members to serve one another with your gifts and spurring one another on towards love and good works, and in particular, like it says on multiple occasions throughout the epistles, to rebuke one another when that becomes necessary. And part of your responsibilities as church members is to ensure that the leaders of the church never operate in such a way that they are simply seeking to empower themselves. In this passage, we read about Simon, who is just interested in building a platform that is bigger so that he might stand on it and seem taller than the rest of them. If that is ever the case in this church, then the the leadership has failed. If I ever act in a way that is similar to Simon, trying to gain power or elevate my own name, that is the day that you should call a church business meeting and fire me. I did not start this church. God did. And it is part of your responsibility as church members to serve as an emergency break for the body. So the elders give direction to the church. We seek to lead the church in the way we believe the Lord is taking us. But if you see that there is something unbiblical taking place as members, it is your job to pull that emergency break and make sure that we do not move forward until we are turned in the right direction so that we do not drive off a cliff. So if you see that the elders are moving in a direction that is contrary to scripture, then hold us accountable. And I must add that I am incredibly thankful that I have fellow elders who do serve as men of integrity, that I can trust to serve faithfully by my side, and that I can recognize that these people are not only shepherding you, but Mike and Steve are also helping to shepherd me as I help to shepherd them and you as well, that we are guarding one another. Application number three, be careful who is influencing you. The church of Samaria was not expecting Simon to turn out to be a false convert. I don't think anyone in the church expected this man to do what he did at the end of the story. They baptized him. Certainly, they expected this man to live the rest of his life in full obedience to Jesus. They believed that Simon had followed Philip for a reason. It says that he followed after him for a time. But eventually, the unbeliever will not have the mind of Christ, and over time it will become plain they are living for their own passions, not for the kingdom of God. So I simply want to warn you to be careful who you, are allowing you, who you are allowing to influence you in your walk with Jesus. There are many people who are influential in the church who do not deserve that position. 
And there are many people who are on television and on YouTube and have blogs and who have all sorts of other ways to influence you and catch your ears and eyes that are trying to do nothing more than gain a platform for themselves. Sometimes because they want money, sometimes because they want clicks and thumbs and likes and all those other things, because they want their name to be great. Beware who it is that you are allowing to influence you. And if you are not sure if this person that you are watching or listening to is of benefit for your walk with Christ, please reach out to those in your community group or your elders who will help you be discerning in whether or not this is somebody you should let into your ears. There's a lot of good stuff out there. We live in a time where there is more access to great teaching than ever before in history. But there's also a lot of sorcerer Simons who are well worth avoiding. So as we leave Simon behind, let's move now into the coming week with a commitment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength and not merely searching for the blessings that come from knowing him, but the blessing that it is to actually know him. So let's seek Christ together. And as we go forth and scatter this week, let's pray. Oh Lord, we do come before you recognizing that this is a weighty, weighty passage. Whenever we are talking about somebody being condemned and even being cursed to experience hell, well, that is not a thing to take lightly. So I pray that those in this room, that none would taste death that none would taste that eternal fire, that none would taste the wrath of God. I pray that each person would encounter your grace. Lord, for those who are saved, I pray that this text would give them the, the time and opportunity and ability to look inwardly and recognize in any area where they have tried to come to Christ, to use you as a way to advance themselves in any way, and that of that they would repent. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that has not yet known you, that has not placed their faith in you, especially, Lord, I pray for the young people here in the room who have heard the gospel hundreds of times in church and RGF kids and youth group. Lord, I pray for them that you would not let their ears become dull, but you would break through to them and show them your love. And I pray, Lord, that you would save them. And God, I pray for every person in this room that we would live for you, that we would love you, and that we would never respond like Simon did to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.